Ian Hunter is a 72-year-old Vietnam veteran and an unlikely poster boy for the use of therapeutic cannabis. Mr. Hunter had suffered pain ever since a tree fell on his back during the war, followed by the onset of osteoarthritis and general wear and tear from playing rugby. He was sick of his endless pain pills, and so he decided to try medical cannabis. After day three, I had no pain left. It was just like it had been sucked out of me. It was just wonderful. I don't wake up in pain anymore. I wake up thinking I've had a good sleep or I've had a lousy sleep and I'm ready to go or I should go back to sleep, as the case may be. Sounds like a massive improvement after... Ah, huge, huge. Um, Has it improved your mood as well? Yes, I think my wife is a better person to ask that question. Shall I ask your wife? Yeah. (laughs) Darling. Um, Ian here, how have you noticed the changes in the kids? Much nicer, mate. In what way? Well, when someone has chronic pain, it makes a lot of difference to their personality and when they've got chronic pain the only way they can help themselves is to lie down can't do anything so when you spend 14 15 hours lying down it doesn't make you very happy which also reflects on your family too so much nicer man the children would agree with me This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine. And I'm Felicity. Patients in Australia are just starting to get their hands on medical cannabis, and for some, it's made a huge difference to their ability to cope with chronic pain. This field is moving rapidly, and so this episode, our reporter Penny Durham has looked extensively at what the experts are saying right now about the scientific evidence for medical cannabis. And we'll also look at the barriers that are still holding GPs back from prescribing. So, Penny, welcome back to the show. Hello, my fellow Republicans. (laughs) Uh, So there's lots of patients out there like Ian, who you interviewed at the top of the show, um, who I guess have become much nicer men, (laughs) as his wife described. Yeah, that that was very sweet. Um, There are all sorts of patients being prescribed cannabis now for quite a wide range of complaints beyond pain. Um, Apparently, their average age is exactly 72, like Ian. Um, There's still only about 11,000 people so far who are going through the legal channels, Um, and those legal channels have been open about two and a half years now. The number of people self-medicating with cannabis in one form or another is presumed to be much greater. Uh, By comparison, Germany started its legal medical cannabis scheme about the same time as we did, or even a bit later, and they're up closer to 200,000 prescriptions. So it seems like it's still quite difficult for GPs to prescribe in Australia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how Ian got his treatment approved? Yeah, so Ian was referred by his GP to a pain specialist and from there to Professor Alistair Vickery, who is a GP in Perth. And he's one of 56 doctors who are authorised prescribers of cannabis for certain conditions. Which is hardly any GPs when you look at that as a percentage of how many we've got out there in Australia. Well, they're not all GPs, and um, you don't actually have to be an authorised prescriber as such. So how it works in, is that in Australia there is one approved product that's on the ARTG, uh, that's Nabiximols or Sativex. It's an oral spray that's approved for MS spasticity, but it's still Schedule 8, uh, GPs can't prescribe it, and it's not on the PBS. 
to prescribe any of the other, you know, 70 or 80 products that are available in the world at the moment, you have to go through the TGA's Special Access Scheme Category B, and that allows you to prescribe for a particular patient, or the Authorised Prescriber Scheme, like Professor Vickery, which allows you to prescribe for a particular condition or conditions. Um, all the, the various products out there have varying ratios of THC and CBD, and they vary in their doses and formats. And you have to get authority for each one of those that you might want to use. And you may also have to get an import license on top of that. You also have to get state and territory approval separately, although New South Wales recently removed this extra layer. So obviously it is quite burdensome for a time-poor GP. At least certainly the first time you do it, it's going to take you quite a while and you know getting around the paperwork. And it's also quite a time-consuming process to find the optimal product and dosage for your patient. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Um, you also have to show that the patient has tried everything else first. For example, if it's pain, then opioids. And so what does the RACGP have to say about this? So the last I heard, they didn't have a lot of guidance for GPs. Have they updated that now? Not very recently. They're um, more or less in favour, but a bit on the fence. And um, I did manage to catch the president, Dr Harry Nespelon, at GP19 in Adelaide a fortnight ago, and this is what he said. Do you think the regulation is right at the moment or should it be easier for GPs to prescribe cannabinoids? Well, in New South Wales, uh, as we know, they've taken away the requirement for state approval for uh, supplying uh, medicinal cannabis. Look, the, there is, I think, a lot of pressure on politicians at the moment to make the system easier. But the evidence also shows that it's not overwhelmingly positive in terms of the effects of medicinal cannabis. A lot of the trials are N equals 1 trials, so you're trying the medication in a single patient and seeing whether it works or not. Medicinal cannabis does offer a great hope, um, like almost all new medications. It's only time will tell whether it actually does help as much as the proponents um, show it to help. There are a lot of uh, barriers to patients using medicinal cannabis. It's still very expensive. You still can't drive if you um, take medicinal cannabis. Those two things often stop people from taking medication. The concern is that there may be groups out there that are trying to exploit patients when it comes to medicinal cannabis. But the most important thing is that if this is a legitimate um, therapeutic uh, tool, that this should be in the hands of GPs and the doctors who are taking care of those patients on a day-to-day -day basis. There is no doubt that they're safer than opioids. Um, they create fewer dependency problems and they certainly don't create overdose deaths. And I think some of the guidelines have been written before the opioid crisis really got underway. Um, do you think that it, instead of being a sort of a last resort treatment when you've exhausted every other option, say if we're talking about pain, um, that it should actually be moved up the line in terms of second line treatment so on? I don't think the evidence would support that at the moment. I think that we would expect as any new medication comes in that you use it at the end of the therapeutic um, regime. And look, as time goes on, it may move up the um, you know may move up the therapeutic scale, but I don't think we're there at the moment. The college, though, does seem to be wanting to support GPs to acquaint themselves and equip themselves to be able to offer it um, to the right patients. I can tell you that the college is um, providing webinars hosted by the President in New South Wales about um, medicinal cannabis and how to use it uh, properly and how to access it. 
look, it's important that uh, we, you know, that GPs are educated about medicinal cannabis. Uh, patients do come in and ask about medicinal cannabis for their problems and some of those patients will actually be eligible to receive medicinal cannabis. So it's not very fair on those patients if, as a GP, you have no way of responding to their inquiries. Uh, so Harry's taken a very measured approach there, which is interesting because next up we're going to look at the evidence for medical cannabis. Is there enough data on the use of medical cannabis for GPs to feel confident prescribing? Uh, but first we're going to take a short break. The following clinical interview is brought to you by Menorini. This week, I talked with Professor Liz Raymond, a GP and palliative medicine consultant based in Queensland, to discuss end-of-life decision-making. Professor Elizabeth Raymond, thank you for being on the podcast today. Pleasure. So with the work that you've been doing, would you say GPs have an increasing role in palliative care? I think that given the ageing population, that we are facing a tsunami of deaths. Most of those people are dying in expected death and they tell us they want to die at home. But most of those people are not dying at home because in that terminal phase they're being transferred. Now that represents a real um, service demand gap and I think GPs are really well suited to filling that gap. And I think that there will be more calls for them to fill that gap into the very near future. GPs know their patient the best. It's the GPs who the person trusts and I think it's the GPs who are best situated to care for the person but also to coordinate other services to come in and help people at home. So what are some of the challenges that doctors face when they're trying to develop end-of-life plans? The first one is communication. It's really hard can be very hard to know when to bring these conversations up with a patient. So what we suggest is to use the surprise question. Would you be surprised if this person was to die in the next 12 months or so? Now, if the answer to that is no, I wouldn't be surprised, um, and we know that 75% of the time, the GP's response to that question will be correct. So that's a very sensitive, specific tool, if you like, that GPs can use, then that's probably the time to bring it up um, and to create an advanced care plan for the person. It's really important to know then what will our plan be when that person inevitably deteriorates. So rather than having to make decisions in a crisis, um, you can know what to do at the time. It is complex and it needs to be person-centred. So yes, it does take time, but I think virtually any GP who's been involved with, with palliative care will tell you that it's also remarkably satisfying. For me, you know, just that relationship with the family and people are so real when they're in those difficult situations and so you really feel like you're having a meaningful interaction with people. I've read that you've been quite involved in developing support and resources for doctors who are navigating palliative care. Can you let us know a bit about those resources and where people can find them? 
probably the most important one is developing a framework of uh, end-of-life care, probably suitable for people in their last year of life. And we've developed that framework so that all the clinicians can be proactive so that we're not um, responding in a crisis. So there are three clinical processes in that framework. The first one is advanced care planning. The second clinical process in that is developing a goals of care plan. That can be a case conference, a family meeting, however that's done. And then the third one is how to look after the person when they're actively dying or in their what we call the terminal stage, which is usually the last week or so of life. Managing that terminal stage is really, really important because people are very unstable the closer they get to death and unless their symptoms can be managed uh, in a proactive way, then it can result in that person having to be transferred to hospital even though they don't want to go. The two service development elements that we've worked out there are the caring at home resources, but also for residential aged care facilities, a terminal end-of-life care plan so that all of the important elements like letting the families know, looking after uh, things that are culturally important to people, but also proactively managing the dying process by anticipatory prescribing and ordering, that sort of thing. And then also what to do, what's the paperwork you've got to do after the person dies at home. Are there any questions that you often get from doctors who have been navigating these issues? Well, certainly now there's a lot of opiophobia out in the community and I think GPs sometimes get concerned now. Are they doing the right thing if they're prescribing opioids? And so I really try to encourage them that absolutely that's the right thing. We need to have people dying comfortably. Also, the other thing is that sometimes people get concerned about converting from one opioid to another. How do they do that? What's the conversion? So we've actually made an app which is called Palimeds and that gives all that sort of information in there for GPs. Then it's all there for them. Oh, yeah, great. That's an interesting use of technology. Yes, it is. It is. And that was produced for us by the National Prescribing Service. So it sounds like there's, you know, there's all these resources which help GPs and health practitioners develop like a network of care around the patient. Exactly, exactly. That's what it does. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Okay, welcome back to the show. So at the moment, there isn't a great deal of evidence for medical cannabis yet. Um, isn't that right? Or is that uh, currently changing? Well, yeah, that, that is something that you hear a lot. It's the chief objection that people make when asked whether they're in favour of prescribing it or whether they would or not. And um, while it's true to a degree, you have to remember why that's the case. There are several reasons for it. Cannabis was very much demonised in America in the mid-20th century for political reasons and, frankly, racist reasons. It's still not trusted by a lot of doctors and institutions, so it's hard to get approval for a clinical trial. Um, it's hard even to get a supply of the stuff in the States for research because the supply of cannabis is controlled by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, whose entire mission is to reduce drug use, so they have a certain slant. 
um, and it, it's very stacked against you. So a lot of the evidence for it comes from studies you might regard as low quality because they're small or short-lived or observational and they all measure slightly different things and there is a lot of conflation with recreational use so that they don't synthesize nicely into systematic reviews. It's also not a single compound that's being tested that further complicates things. There are multiple compounds of interest that can be combined in various ways. Um, of course, there's a whole range of indications that's to be tested on. And um, what, there are methodological issues, like it's quite hard to blind people as to whether they're consuming THC or a placebo, as you might imagine, if you have any experience of THC. But meanwhile, the clinical case studies are piling up. There, there is also quite a lot of basic science into the mechanisms, and we know that the reason cannabinoids work in so many different ways is that there are cannabinoid receptors everywhere in your brain, your other organs, your central and peripheral nervous systems, your gut, and in your immune cells. Um, but the one place the receptors are not is in your brainstem, so cannabis doesn't affect your cardiac or respiratory function, and that's why it's impossible to lethally overdose on cannabis. And when you get to the clinical context, there are lots of indications with you know, varying degrees of evidence, and different experts will tell you different things, um, especially when it comes to mental health and young people. For some people, uh, well, some doctors will say, yes, there are good mental health indications for it, and there are good pediatric indications for it. Others will say, absolutely not, no mental health issues, no young people. But the basic list is pain, as we've discussed, you know, neuropathic or chronic non-cancer pain, uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, seizures, spasticity, insomnia, anxiety, PTSD, inflammatory bowel disease, palliative care, and migraine. Why do they say non-cancer pain? I think cancer pain is its own genre of pain. Chronic pain and neuropathic pain, they're ones that are either problems with your nerve cells or, pro or neurological problems rather than pain that's being generated at the actual site. Oh, I see. And it can yeah. affect that. Right. So you can, you can actually improve that. Okay. And, um, of course, the two main cannabinoids, THC and CBD, work on different things. So you wouldn't give a lot of THC to someone with anxiety, for example. Anxiety and paranoia are a recognized side effect of THC. Um, but the fact that the cannabinoids have such a diverse range of action is a really good thing for the patient because you might prescribe a cannabinoid for their pain and find that it also helps them with appetite and sleep. I spoke to a Canadian doctor about this, uh, Daniel Schechter, who founded the first specialised cannabinoid clinic in Canada, which is now known as Cannabo. He is also the Director of Global Medical Services at Canopy Growth Corporation, whose Australian branch is Spectrum Therapeutics, and he's very passionate about this topic. It's incredibly important that as a healthcare community, we get past reacting to patients who are asking about medical cannabis by regurgitating the same things that we have learned uh, in medical school, that cannabis is a gateway drug, that cannabis is something that people use for recreational purposes. Um, it's important to remember that there are incredible advances that have been made in terms of the understanding of cannabis as to why it is working, why it can be beneficial for pain, for nausea, for spasticity, for sleep. And it's because we have learned, we have identified, we have discovered that the endocannabinoid system is an incredibly important system that regulates a number of different physiologic and pathophysiologic uh, processes. And the active ingredients within medical cannabis 
THC, CBD, are going to have a significant influence on the endocannabinoid system and it can affect very importantly um, physiologic outcomes. Cannabinoid receptors are everywhere and one of the things that's fascinating about medical cannabis is that it can affect more than one symptom. It can affect not only pain, it can affect nausea, it can affect sleep, it can affect appetite. And this is something that for, for physicians who are comfortable with cannabis, who understand the benefits, uh, they can actually harness that as a benefit. Because people who are living with pain are not living with pain in isolation. They're living with pain and have associated comorbidities. They have uh, difficulty with sleep. They have difficulty with appetite. They have depressed mood. They have anxiety. And physicians often will prescribe five different classes of medication to treat these five different problems. And in some patients, medical cannabis can not only be effective for the primary condition, but for all of these associated conditions as well. And this is what we're seeing in clinical practice. We're seeing patients not only reduce their analgesics, their opioid medications, but they're also able to achieve a reduction in a number of other classes of medications. So while we do have to be careful about some of the claims that are being made around medical cannabis, we also have to harness what its potential actually is. Head to head against opioids, is there any downside? The only downside is that it's not accepted uh, by the broader medical community and it's not covered as a benefit by insurance companies. Um, we also don't have as much data that we would like to have. What we do want to emphasize though when it comes to cannabis and comparing it to opioids is the fact that it is safer. The fact that cannabis does not kill people. Opioids kill. Opioids cause devastation to families, to communities, to countries. Cannabinoids are not a gateway drug, but they are an exit drug. They are an exit from dependency on opioids. So I also spotted recently that the TGA has some good guidance on their website now for doctors in this area. Um, I noticed that there's specifically a paper on uh, for MS, for palliative care, epilepsy in pediatric and young adult patients, nausea and vomiting, and also chronic non-cancer pain as well. Uh, those are from 2017 though, uh, so keep in mind that there could also be more studies which have been done since uh, these papers were published. Yeah, I had a look at those as well. Um, and so in each of those guidance documents, the TGA has really stressed that the evidence is very limited for efficacy for medical cannabis, just as you were saying, Penny. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the absence of evidence isn't evidence for absence. So medical cannabis could work really well in some circumstances. It's just really hard to be confident um, based on the data that we have right now. And I know a lot of GPs are holding off on prescribing until there's stronger proof out there. And, I mean, let's not forget that there's also a lot of money to be had in this area at the moment. So, as everyone knows, a lot of uh, cannabis companies are opening up shop in Australia. And, as we know, they're starting to run seminars for GPs, very keen to have their stalls at all the major medical conferences. And, I mean, they've obviously got an interest in promoting medical cannabis as a treatment. Um, Yeah, I'm sure they've got some good information to offer because they're the ones, you know, working in this industry. But of course, you know, there are some independent sources out there as well. Um, And I 
think you've got to keep in mind that cannabis isn't comparable to other pharmaceuticals in terms of the quality of the evidence to back it up. Um, and there's lots of people in the industry who are really evangelical um, at conferences. And I I mean, I'm always just a little bit suspicious of people <laughs> who are so excited about a product. No product is that good, in my opinion. <laughs> I have heard it described as a panacea, meaning a cure-all. It's not quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess on the other side of the coin, um, as we were mentioning before, you could have patients that are already using cannabis to self-medicate. Um, you know, people have been doing it for hundreds of years. Uh, so I guess if they aren't taking a medically compounded one, they're probably just going and buying it on the street corner. I guess one of the concerns in this area is the link that people make that smoking cannabis is associated with schizophrenia. Um, I guess, you know, we discuss it a little bit in recreational use. Is it the same for medicinal cannabis, Penny? And um, how does that evidence stack up? Um, so this association was first proposed about 30 years ago in a Swedish study, um, but I don't think anyone has convincingly shown that it's a causal relationship, and not for want of trying. There has been hundreds of papers on that association ever since then. Um, look, cannabis could combine with a predisposition for schizophrenia and increase your risk, but obviously it's not a cause on its own because millions of people around the world smoke cannabis frequently from a young age and don't get schizophrenia. Um so Professor Ian McGregor from the Lambert Initiative in Sydney told me that some large genome-wide association studies have suggested that the schizophrenia might come first, that is, the same genetic predisposition may also drive somebody to use cannabis. Um, he said um, it's been calculated that you'd need to stop about 1,500 teenagers smoking cannabis to prevent one case of schizophrenia. That's according, to, that. <laughs> that's according to one UK researcher. But it is a very well-publicised association and for that reason, and because of some of its other side effects, I don't think any doctor would want to prescribe cannabis to someone with a history of psychosis or other major mental illness. Um, in terms of whether medicinal doses of cannabis are likely to have the same effect, very unlikely. We're, we're talking much lower doses here than the wake-and-bake crowd are taking. So what do doctors think about this? Are they concerned about the schizophrenia-psychosis link? Uh, there might be. It's one that comes up a lot. Um, the Lambert did a survey of 640 GPs last year and found that almost 60% of them supported cannabis being available on prescription. But while a lot of them had had inquiries and quite recent inquiries, less than 30% of those GPs felt comfortable discussing it with their patients and only 7% knew how to help patients legally access cannabis. Only a tenth of them reported good knowledge of its medicinal effects. And um, I found this one surprising. 13% of those GPs believed cannabis to be more hazardous than opioids. <laughs> and uh, let's remember, there is no lethal dose of cannabis. There isn't one. Um, rates of dependence are low, an estimated 9%. And yes, they have some side effects, but so do opioids, some, some very inconvenient ones. And according to both Dr. Schechter and Professor McGregor, there is mounting evidence that it's not a gateway drug, but an exit drug or a reverse gateway. It helps you reduce or quit your opioids, um, as well as benzodiazepines and gabapentinoids. Interesting. So um, I guess it seems also that the reality at the moment is that medicinal cannabis uh, actually comes with more legislative side effects. Mm. Uh, if you're talking about the road rules, yes. Um, yes. <laughs> this is a bit of a speed bump or a pothole, uh, whichever annoying metaphor you prefer. It's uh, illegal to drive with any THC in your system in any state or territory of Australia, even if you have a prescription. So if you prescribe it to your patients, you have to warn them not to drive. 
And this is crazy because they're not testing you for impairment. It's not like blood alcohol levels, which is actually a good proxy for driver impairment. Traces of THC can stick around in your system for up to a week, and the tests don't distinguish between someone who took a prescription cannabis oil capsule two days ago and someone who's just had a couple of bucket bongs and jumped in the car. Um, so there really needs to be a high-profile legal test case to resolve this conflict between law enforcement and health legislation, and maybe that would help the police to mellow out a little bit. It's interesting, though, because there's a lot of high-strength opioids that people can't drive on either. Yeah. Well, they're not meant to, but yeah, they're meant do to. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Penny, thank you so much for doing all the hard work on this uh, <laughs> podcast feature for us. It's um, been really informative. Oh, you're welcome. So that's it for this week's podcast. But before we go, and while we're talking about medicinal cannabis, uh, here's some quirky medical history. Have you ever wondered how some very famous historical figures self-medicated? So you'd know JFK, the 35th president of the United States, and he's often, you know, depicted as this vibrant, young, full of energy figure right up until when his life came to an abrupt end. But in 2017, the Journal of Neurosurgery actually dug through all of the late president's medical records in minute detail, and they drew on decades of medical records and case notes from his treating doctors. So the study authors even gave time in their paper to comment on the fact that because JFK had such bad back pain, uh, he was forced to wear this lumbar back brace, uh, especially in the later years of his life. And that may have been a contributing factor to how he died that day in Dallas. Hmm, really? Yeah. So I'll quote verbatim um, so you get a good picture of what they're trying to get at. Um, So they say, the use of this tightly bound lumbar brace returned the president to an upright position after the potentially survivable first shot and back into Lee Harvey Oswald's scope site, uh, allowing the second shot, obviously fatal shot, to the head. Had the president not been wearing the augmented brace, he might have crumpled forward and remained out of the Oswald's line of fire. Hmm, might have. I mean, very retrospective speculation. Exactly. <laughs> and you know how people love to go the what if this, what if that. Everyone wants yeah. to keep JFK alive okay, on okay. that day. But you know, the Kennedy curse. Uh, He had a very unfortunate medical history. He had scarlet fever as a child. Then he grew into an adult who was constantly pained by gastrointestinal problems. Uh, It led to the eventual diagnosis of Addison's disease. And then in his early 20s, they believe after a football match, of course, um, the back pain began. Anyway, and this back pain was so serious that he failed to get into the army and also failed a Navy physical. But you know, the Kennedy family, very rich and powerful. Somehow his father managed to circumvent this and got him into the Navy, uh, which, as you know, he became a war hero. And this is mainly from an incident where he jumped into the water and dragged up to 11 men uh, out of the water after a Japanese uh, attack on the vessel that he was on in World War II. That's very heroic. I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. And so, you know, he leaves the Navy and he's got an even worse back, and he goes into politics. And so while he's in the White House, apparently he turned to everything. You know, he's got the alternative medicine in there. He's got his lovely back brace. And then starts, you know, he turns to people that actually aren't doctors, and he's getting meth injections into his back. (laughs) Um, In the same time, he underwent four back operations, and, you know, his pain is really terrible. So he hires this famous doctor, I use the term doctor loosely. He's unlicensed. He's known as Dr. Max Feelgood Jacobson. Uh, He's a New York doctor. And he would come to the White House and inject him with 10 to 15 milligrams of amphetamines. 
as often as twice a week. And in that same time frame, it's also reported that the president would sit in the White House and smoke marijuana. And they suspect, given his medical history, it's probably less for partying and more for pain relief. That's hilarious. Yeah, your first historical, uh, clinically confirmed in a medical journal, uh, medicinal cannabis user. I wonder which other presidents did that. I don't know. <laughs> Politics used to be like such a circus. Like now when we see what our guys get in trouble yeah, for. Yeah. Really? <laughs>